Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jones! Stokes flashes it away, through the covers for four, and England have won the match. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. England, of course, blazing a trail in the T20 World Cup. Their last match of the group stages is on Saturday against South Africa. But England's performances in the World T20 have suddenly been totally eclipsed by the Azim Rafiq racism story that's engulfed Yorkshire County Cricket Club and in fact we did a podcast on this yesterday and we've had to throw that one away because already uh, new events have come to light, new decisions have been made, uh, chairmen have resigned and so on. So we're going to do a a new take on this whole issue Uh, and it's interesting that uh, the the new Cricketer magazine is out today uh, which has on its uh, cover headline crisis in the corridors and actually we thought originally that was just going to refer to some problems in the ECB, running the game, uh, various controversies that have surrounded them over the last few months, including the departure of Ian Watmore, the chairman, and other things. But in fact, this headline has proved to be remarkably prescient, given what's happened in the last 24 hours or so with the chairman of Yorkshire, Roger Hutton, resigning over the Azim Rafiq allegations and and issue and uh, other members of the Yorkshire board might uh, do the same uh, in in due course uh, the the events are sort of getting uh, almost out of control but we have uh, quite a lot of uh, material in the cricketer magazine covering this sort of area and two journalists in particular are, are very hot on these particular subjects so Hugh Turberville has written some interesting material about uh, the current state of um, play at the ECB and the departure of Ian Watmore but we should get straight to the story about Azim Rafiq, which is unfolding as we speak. And the man who's really been uh, at this from the start and really covering it with great detail is George DeBell. Uh, George, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know you've written a column in The Cricketer uh, about this, which, of course, in a way is almost out of date now. The problem with running a, a monthly magazine is you have to go to press about a week before 
or you write it about a week before it goes to press. So your column uh, from a week ago will seem like kind of ancient history in a way. But just give us a, a little sense initially. How did you first get involved in the Azim Rafiq case? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, James Butler had interviewed him, who does... Uh, James Butler does the Cricket Badger podcast. That's right, the Cricket Badger podcast. And oddly, I had saved James Butler from drowning once in the Caribbean. So James owes me. <laughs> and he said, I need you to talk to Azim Rafiq. He had done a podcast with him. And uh, uh, Azim had said some strong things in it, but it hadn't really gained any traction. And so um, he wanted me to write about it on Crick Info. And I actually ignored him for a week, but I had done several similar pieces and I'd found them quite draining uh, for various reasons. And I was a little bit reluctant to get dragged into another one at that stage, which I'm embarrassed to admit now. Uh, and also I was just really busy with other work. Anyway, I phoned Azim one evening. I think I was meant to be covering England v Pakistan. I was at Old Trafford. And almost immediately uh, I realised the extent of the problem. I, I was gripped. Uh, to his story and uh, also the fact that he, he he sounded kind of like a broken man, really. He, he had really been through it and he sounded desperate and he sounded as if he needed help. So I felt that I had a responsibility uh, to, to tell his story. And I started to check it out uh, as well. And I it, it, it was even worse than he was saying at times. I mean, a lot of people who had played with him were very open about the experiences, they had a lot of regret. Uh, they had phoned him and apologized and stuff. And um, I, I don't know, we, we've worked together for, for well over a year now and have spoken many times a day, almost every day. And uh, it's become you know, a very good relationship. Uh, and it's been you know, my privilege to tell his story. And uh, hopefully his story is, has cut through and maybe will make a difference because I think uh, most right-minded people are horrified by what he went through and uh, they want to ensure that other people don't go through it. Has it, uh, uh, the story, sort of great, gained greater momentum than you expected? Um, and impact in a way? Uh, well, 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 going way back, yes. I mean, if you were asking over a year ago, yes. Uh, the, the aim for a few weeks has been to have the polit political involvement. and. I, I was hoping that DCMS would get involved. I've been pushing for that for a little while because nothing else was was making any difference. You know, it seemed the game was very reluctant to listen. PCA hadn't listened. Yorkshire certainly hadn't listened. And the ECB were, you know, saying all the right things, but not doing anything. So, uh, and, and then once it moved, which was last Monday, which was the day I think that we did the piece about uh, the player who'd used the P word and it had been dismissed as banter. That seemed to really cut through, to be honest, in a way that, yeah, I, I wasn't particularly expecting. Um, and then from then, things moved very fast. But I, or, I've had a name for a couple of months that something like this would happen. But, yeah, once we reach tipping point, uh, you know, things have fallen very, very quickly. And we'll continue to for, uh, for a few weeks, I think. Clearly, the, the, the emphasis of this, the core of this is is racial bullying and so on. Uh, that that Azim Rafiq and allegedly other uh, Asian-born or Asian ethnic-oriented players suffered, but also is it a, a parallel uh, case that 
Azim Rafiq is also seeking compensation for his dismissal from Yorkshire. Um, so at, at the time that that um, case started, the employment tribunal started, Azim was making no progress with his attempts to uh, complain through the, the game's uh, protocols. So he, he tried a different strand, yeah. And, and and that is ongoing. Um, that was on his, uh, legal advice. I don't think he's massively committed to that process, to be honest. And he's had several options to turn it down. I can absolutely... He, he has no win, no fee solicitors. Okay? Which is completely reasonable. Uh, you know, they've got to earn a living. And they are um, going to need to be paid at some stage. So I would say that they are largely running the employment side of things. Uh, and Azim is... He's not motivated by money at all. I, I, I actually have urged him to settle between, you know, if I'm honest, um, and you know, ensure that life is a bit more comfortable for his family. Uh, but he has no interest in that at all. He is only motivated, whatever anyone thinks. I promise you, he's only motivated by trying to ensure that life is better for his children, to ensure that they are judged on merit and not by the colour of their skin. And and what's his uh, state of mind at the moment? He, look, he's okay. He, he, he has, he's lost a child, yeah? Mm. It's a big, big deal. He, he's, he's lost a child, he's lost a career, and he's uh, had, a, had a lot of abuse, he's had a lot of frustration. So, you know, he's going through a period of mourning, and, and I, I think I've referred to him previously as broken, and that's not, that's not fair. He, he's cracked, for sure, uh, and he's hurt, but he's strong. Uh, I mean, that's probably the definition of strength, isn't it? When you when you don't feel you can go on, when you feel broken and weak, and you keep going anyway, and that's what he's done. So he he is determined. He's extremely bright. It's been a real pleasure to work with him in those regards, and I think he's very honourable. Now I know that he has a past, as 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 do I, by the way, uh, which is uh, you know they're, they're, I'm sure that most of us have done things in our past of which we're not entirely proud and I don't think it's relevant really uh the factor here is that he shouldn't have been judged on the color of his skin and he shouldn't have been discriminated harassed or bullied uh and he he went through every hoop that was demanded of him to complain and and uh report and they were all ignored so he has done us a service I think in highlighting lots of failings within the game and I honestly think that the game, including Yorkshire cricket, will owe him a, a huge debt in years to come. I, I honestly think he's he's a bit of a hero. Um, but you know, I, I've been working with him quite closely. Maybe I'm maybe I'm a bit biased. What what um, what's the truth of the fact that he and Gary Balance are, according to Balance, best mates, or were? They're clearly, they're clearly not, are they? Um, but yeah, they, they they were friends. They were absolutely friends, and that's 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 nice and good. Um, I'll tell you what, about two mornings ago, maybe three, uh, Azim woke me up at about six o'clock with a phone call. And his concern was making sure that Gary Balance was going to be OK if his name came out. His, we hadn't produced his name at that stage. Well, I never did, actually. Um, but, you know, the, the, there were a couple of newspapers sniffing around and it became apparent that they were going to work it out. And he was worried uh, to make sure that Gary had the support and help, which Azeem never had. 
so that that's a mark of him. I mean, they, they definitely were friends, um, and that's uh, going back probably eight years, to be fair. But when Azim, at that stage of Azim's life, he was, uh, you know, he, he would enjoy going out, he would enjoy a drink, and then he decided he wanted to be, I, I don't know, a better Muslim, for uh, want of a better phrase. And at that stage, the differences between him and his teammates started to show. And it was basically when he stopped trying to fit in, stopped trying to be part of a culture that was never really him, that he fell out with them. While he was trying to be the typical sort of Western Yorkshire white, I guess, Leeds lad, that was seemed to be okay. And as soon as he wanted to to be, I don't know, the Muslim young man, uh, that was when there started to be friction with some of his teammates. Mm. I think that if there's only one takeaway from this, people have to learn that they cannot use that word. Mm. You don't use it. There's a million other words in our vocabularies, eh? So use those instead. I, I think as a, um, a, a a white man in Britain, you just don't use the word. I'll tell you what, I, I had to uh, tell a, a colleague in the press box within the last four or so years to stop using it. And now he wasn't using it pejoratively. He was, he, and I said, you can't use that word, mate. Mm. Uh, and he said, oh, it's just an abbreviation. To which I said, actually, well, we're here for seven hours, you know, take the extra 0.1 of a second and, you know, go, go enjoy it. Say the whole world word. Uh, <laughs> th- there is no way you can get away with it. Uh, it has connotations. And to d- ignore that at this stage is to be antagonistic. Now, the point you make about banter in the dressing room, uh, some things that we felt were acceptable 30 years ago are absolutely not now. Mm. And that's OK. We learn. I don't know that the people on the wrong end of the banter ever felt that it was particularly helpful or positive or uniting. I think that sounds like it would have been quite alienating. So, you know, we live and learn, but I think it would be extremely unwise for anyone to use that terminology or terminology similar to that. And the other thing is, by the way, you know, dressing rooms, maybe it would be more helpful if they're a bit more supportive. Well, yeah, I mean, there is that. And it's interesting that, that uh, you know, people like Marcus Scothic have made the point that he made the point to Nasser Hussain, interestingly, um, that uh, he was surprised when he came into the England dressing room that there were so many harsh comments made and, and you know, piss taking going on. And he said to Nasser as captain, um, you know, could we kind of be a bit nicer to each other sort of thing? And I, and I suppose, you know, that that's a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to say. I mean, uh, I think what, there is a line, Simon, though, isn't there, between... You know, we we take the piss out of each other in the press box. In fact, there, there's a WhatsApp group with some of my best friends from the our colleagues from the press box, who which is called "I'm bullied in here every day," which is something that I said in there as a joke, and they make fun of me every single day, and every single day it's funny, and but they're never racist or homophobic or sexist. Mm. You can be funny without being excluding people in in those ways. Uh, so I don't think we're necessarily saying, oh, the world has to be completely humorless. You just have to not be racist. Uh, what about um, you've um, today told the story about uh, another player who is substantiating Azim Rafiq's claims about Michael Vaughan's comment that there are too many yeah. of you around kind of thing. You've, you've substantiated that with Rana Al-Navid now. So yeah. just tell us about that. Well, he'd always said that, to be fair. I mean, the, 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 the allegation was that 
uh, Michael Vaughan had said that to four people as he ran on. Uh, the, uh, Yorkshire had fielded four young Asian players in that game, I think. Uh, one of whom was Azim, and another one was Rana. And Rana um, endorses Azim's uh, memory that he heard that. Now, you know, I wasn't there. Uh, Michael deserves uh, a, a right to reply, and it's. I would think that there is a way back here for Michael. Um, I, I wonder if he, he might be best off reflecting with some humility on some of the things that people think he has done and said. I'm wondering whether, it, and saying, you know, maybe if I had my time again, I'd be a wiser man. And I, I personally, I would be quite um, uh, open-minded towards that. I, I, I think a blanket denial at this stage, oh, I don't know, people will make up their own mind. It seems odd that, two players who played with him would decide to make something up like that. But, you know, it's not the most egregious uh, racial slur we've ever heard. It might even have been a very clumsy attempt to be a uniting thing. It might have been. I've been generous there. I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I'm not the judge and jury. But two of the four uh, have um, endorsed what Azim said. And what about the other two? Well, one of them, I think, is very keen not to. Uh, and um, I mean, just seems to have genuinely said he didn't hear it. And that's completely fine. If they were there, I wasn't. The other one, uh, let, let's uh, see what he says. I don't think it's very... Yeah, let, let's see. You can't prejudge it at the moment. OK. Well, no, I mean, we, we have spoken. OK. Um, uh, but, you know, people have views and memories. And also they have a choice about what they want to say in public. Because not everyone wants to be subjected to the abuse... Mm. that um, Azim has. I mm. mean, Azim this morning had someone phone his suppliers. He's got a fish and chip shop and, try. you know, he, he's, having, he's had to phone the police this week because people were at his mum's door and stuff. He's had to put up with a whole load of rubbish. And I absolutely get if I was a, a, a Yorkshire colleague, if I was one of that group of four, I can see that you'd be looking at what Azim's gone through and thinking, do you know what? I don't fancy that. Do you think it's uh, endemic in the game, this? Now, I mean, York, Yorkshire obviously are at the are bearing the brunt of the storm at the moment. I mean, do you think it's uh, rife amongst the game still? I, I don't know about rife. I mean, I, I don't know how you would define that. I think we have a, a, an inclusion problem. Yeah. I think we have a diversity problem. But we do in society, whether that's always about race or about class or about money, I don't know, and I don't know where that begins and starts. Uh, you know, if it's a Venn diagram, no doubt they they cross over. You know, we, we make all sorts of mistakes as a game. One of the key ones is that as a, a young player joining a county system, you were asked to pay for coaching and kit, but just, just about everywhere. So if you're a talented young person, you have to pay 300 quid or so to mm. be in the county system. Well, straight mm. away, you're excluding vast sections of society. Mm. Not necessarily non-white, but just vast sections of society. You know, the figures would suggest that uh, recreational level, there's a lot of uh, Asian people playing cricket in the UK. And figures would suggest that when we get to professional level, that isn't happening. The, 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 I think the, the disparity is 35% to 3%. Yeah. We've got to look at that. There, there are reasons. Racism is too broad a word, probably. But, you know, institutional racism, I, you know, I do believe in that. Do I think it's endemic? I think we've got a problem. Do I think it's worse at Yorkshire? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, 
Honestly, I'm dealing with this stuff all, every day in the last 18 months. And nearly every club that you talk to, which may have issues, seems very keen to engage, listen, change, be better. Yorkshire, I've just found blanket denials. They, they do not accept there's a problem. Uh, and they seem absolutely insistent that they don't need to change. Now, that, that is a problem in itself. I mean, clearly, the first step towards progress is to acknowledge you have a problem. So what happens now? We've seen Roger Hutton uh, depart, resign, uh, even though he kind of landed in this uh, in the middle when it was going on. And he obviously tried to reform the board uh, as much as he could. What happens next? There yeah. is this hearing at the DCMS in 10 days' time or so. What happens before that, do you think? Well, uh, Lord Patel will be appointed as chair. Uh, which is an interesting choice because uh, he, he is an Asian man. He was bore, brought up, rather, in Bradford, and he experienced racism firsthand, both in on the streets of Bradford and playing league cricket in Bradford. I've, I've just spoken to him, funnily enough. It's why I'm late for this. And um, he told me he learned to run when skinhead gangs were chasing him. So, uh, you know, it, it, the, the P word is not banter to him. He has lived it. He has breathed it. Uh, he's an interesting choice, though, because he remains close to Colin Graves. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that he wouldn't have been able to be appointed without Graves's um, board advisors, the Graves trustees allowing him. I think they still have a veto on the Yorkshire board. So I think he's got a very difficult decision because at the moment, the uh, executive directors on that board are, and I'm talking about, let's be clear, Martin Moxon and Mark Arthur, are the ones about whom many of the complaints have been made. And um, they seem to be very reluctant to release a report, which is not very flattering about their behaviour, and they seem very reluctant to admit they've made any mistakes or need to change. So I think he's going to need to sack them. <laughs> I can't really see any other way for Yorkshire to go forward. Now, that's very difficult, and, and then you turn end up with maybe employment tribunals there as well. But uh, that looks like the, 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 what's going to happen next. Um, and the DCMS hearing will be very interesting. I very much hope that Roger Hutton goes because I felt Roger Hutton was a well-meaning man who got bogged down and that he could blow this wide open with his testimony. So uh, I hope that he goes. I hope the zine goes. And, you know, Mark Arthur and Martin Moxon can go and defend themselves as well. That's absolutely fair. Let's move on. So I'm sure you'll keep us uh, abreast of developments there. I know you're going to that uh, meeting next next week or the week after, and uh, your columns in in the cricketer uh, reflect that. Um, Turbs, your your columns also uh, sort of cover some kind of mini crises in English cricket, but on a more administrative level. Um, you, you did an interview with Tim Lamb, didn't you? Um, in this current issue 25 years on from the formation of the ECB out of the TCCB what were the kind of main things that you took out from the from the Tim Lamb interview so we saw Tim at the cricket writers lunch and uh, put to him that you know he'd make a nice interview for the cricketer uh he and then we realized that the ECB was coming up for 25th birthday on January the 1st and he was the chief exec for the first seven years of it. And uh, so we've done a five page interview uh, over a quite nice lunch at the sports bar in Victoria. And um, he, he, he gave me chapter and verse uh, about why the ECB was created. 
um, TCCB not fit for purpose and all that, MCC gradually losing some of its sort of administrative power. Uh, all very interesting. And we dealt with various uh, things that happened during his tenure, including the 2003 World Cup, trying to persuade the England team to play in Zimbabwe, the new Labour government saying that they shouldn't play. And that was all very awkward. Tim was in the middle and he maintains to this day that England should have sort of fulfilled their contractual obligations. So that that was a, a difficult period. Um, it, it's very, very interesting on uh, Stanford, the Stanford saga, Stanford scandal, if you like. Um, he didn't, he doesn't name the ECB chairman and chief executive at the time, who were, of course, Giles Clark and David Collier, but he says they were incredibly lucky to uh, keep their jobs after such a shameful episode. Uh, there was some interesting stuff about um, T20. It, it came in during his tenure and he's, he was delighted it did. He saw that as a major achievement. But uh, even at the time, he was worried that uh, the counties would over-egg it. And of course, they probably have now. We've got a new tournament. He's, he's got some concerns about the 100. He calls it a curate's egg. Says, you know, he quite enjoyed it, quite enjoyed watching it. But I think he, he shares a lot of the misgivings that a lot of us have, including George and me and, and others, that, you know, there's, there's too many tournaments. David Gower's too many tournaments. You know, it would be okay if July was two months long, but, uh, you know, five tournaments, is it? Trying to fit it into four, into a gap before is, is impossible. So he's got major uh, misgivings about that. Of course, he so, yeah. presided over. Um, he was in in office when the ECB sold their TV rights to Sky. Well, he was he was actually on his way out. He was serving his notice period, and he wasn't involved in the negotiations. Uh, Giles Clark, who wasn't chairman yet, but was in charge of the TV negotiations, uh, kept Tim abreast of all developments, which Tim chuckled about. I think Tim thinks that he. He was trying to sort of keep him in the tent there so that he wouldn't go out and give damning exit interviews about the TV rights. But uh, Tim says he's just thoroughly relieved it didn't happen on his watch. Um, he didn't say anything publicly recently and what more did. I mean, I, you know, the what more lamb axis were involved with the negotiations with the then culture secretary, Chris Smith, getting the cr test cricket rights off the crown jewels, a uh, list of crown jewels. And I think the, the thing was BBC did pay a pittance for it up to 99. Mm. I mean, I think Tim initially said something like a million, 1.6 million a year, but I think he retracted that and said that wasn't right. But when you consider Channel 4 paid 160 million from 99 onwards, um, clearly the BBC were paying nothing like that. So they defend their decision to get the cricket off the crown jewels because it gave them negotiating value. I mean, I've got misgivings about it because it clearly did open the door then for Sky to get the monopoly because in 2006, uh, Channel 4 offered half the money, according to Tim. And BBC weren't interested. ITV have never been interested. So clearly cricket had a conundrum then. You know, we, we need Sky and we need their Sky money um they were backed into a corner really so yeah I, i'm not you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna let tim off let him off that one completely but uh yeah he said he was relieved that it didn't happen under his and what what does he see as the kind of state of, of the organization of the game now 
why he's very, very concerned about the independent board and the lack of cricket expertise on there. There's no first-class county representatives on it. There's minor counties, uh, there's women's cricket, but um, there's no first-class representation on there. So I think that might swing back now. And um, <coughs> Barry, o, Barry O'Brien, former mm. ex-Glamorgan chairman, has now stepped in as interim chairman to replace Ian Watmore. And Tim thinks that's kind of, and I and I do as well. That the, the axis sort of the tectonic plate shifting slightly. That the county counties are getting more of a voice again, insisting they have more of a voice again. Mm. Um, I mean, I, that's that's a good point to to bring George back in because, in a way, you know, you are both of you uh, have have argued against the hundred, and um, you're also talking about, and I agree with you on this, by the way, that selling the whole rights to Sky was a mistake and that you need to balance revenue and reach and that didn't that deal didn't do that but at the same time all the counties or most of the counties lose money so what is the solution if you don't get if you don't maximize broadcast rights and do new tournaments like the 100 which draw more money out of the broadcasters how do you enable county cricket to survive george well, do they lose money? Depends how you judge it. Uh, the broadcast deal pays, it largely is reflective of the test team, isn't it? And it's quite hard to pick a test team if you don't have a first class domestic competition. So you're actually, uh, you know, so it depends how you judge it. You know, the, the counties are contributing to that test team, so therefore they're contributing to the broadcast deal. So it's not quite as simple as, you know, they don't make any money. It's like saying that education doesn't pay its own way or the NHS or something. So uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, um, I don't think the 100 makes a profit. I think we've talked about this before, Simon. Uh, just because something brings in more money, you know, just because turnover increases doesn't mean the revenue increases. Uh, and that's the situation we've seen at the moment, not least because costs are insane. But, uh, you know, just because I don't agree with the basic issue with the 100, I don't, doesn't mean that everything about it's bad by any means, and I, I enjoyed the cricket, certainly. Uh, I also think it's valuable that it's on free-to-air, uh, and that's a, a real uh, you know, progression, I suppose. Having said that, I mean, it, it feels like I, I got mugged once in Birmingham, and I had a very bad mobile phone, and they let me keep it. And ridiculously, at the end of the episode, I said, thanks very much. <laughs> and, I, and it kind of feels like that with the ECB, that uh, they're the ones who have put cricket behind a paywall for 20 years or whatever it's been. And now we're saying, oh, thanks for letting me go with my crappy mobile phone. You know, uh, th there are lots of different ways this could be done. Uh, there's too much cricket. Uh, cricket doesn't work in Windows. I mean, I think that's one of the things we've we've learned this year. It, it, if you want to change one thing, and I, and I would complain about any cricket that was in a window, not whether it was the 100 or whatever, uh, you are prioritising one format when you play in a window. And at the moment, the 100 has the prime weeks of the summer, and that means we're, we're compromising the chance. So what you mean, you would argue for um, spreading, well, obviously having county cricket, championship cricket throughout this, the year, which I, by the way, I would also agree with. But you like the idea of, you know, tournaments being intermingled with each other? Uh, up to a point. Um, certainly, the the uh, the the blast. You see, I wouldn't have the hundred. I'd have had a T Twenty knockout FA Cup style incorporating minor counties or sorry, national counties 
Uh, and I think that could have worked and I'd have given it to free-to-air TV, for example. You see, when we talk about uh, TV companies not being interested, it depends where you start. If you're talking about the day that uh, the bid comes in, well, maybe that's so. But what you have to do as, a, as an executive like Tom Harrison is woo companies for years beforehand and ensure that they are interested, ensure that you have a product that they like. Uh, and one of the myths about the hundred is that it was brought in to uh, please the TV broadcast, sorry, the broadcasters. And of course, it wasn't. They bought a T20 tournament, which you have to keep reminding people, don't you? But yes, I, I would say that T20 doesn't want to start probably until the end of May, and then it can run on that sort of Friday night um, or Friday six o'clock sort of um, uh, schedule as much as possible with some local variants. We know that it sells very well in London on Thursdays. Um, and yes, I would try and play championship uh, more in throughout the season. And, and that doesn't mean you don't play in April. You would. Uh, yeah, so I wouldn't have the 100. Uh, you know, one of my issues with the 100, I don't want to go over old ground, is that it's going to reduce the number of counties by stealth. Lots of people think that's a, a good idea, which is reasonable. I just don't. What it all says, of course, is uh, that being a cricket administrator is a tough job. It's a tough gig. Uh, and uh, Turbs, uh, the sudden resignation of Ian Watmore, the, the chairman of the ECB, much earlier than expected uh, departure, sort of almost underlines that in a way, doesn't it? Just give us a bit of context on, on what happened there. Nice guy, diplomat, civil servant. Um, John Etheridge tweeted, didn't he? The guy, the, the cricket correspondent, the Sun tweeted that it, it just he bit off more than he can chew. Probably, um, you know, it was going to be a two-day sort of gig hosting the Lord's Box, but he's had enormous things to contend with, hasn't he? Like that, whether the Ashes was going to take place or not, the cancellation of the Pakistan tour, um, various other other things, and you know, it just it, it's too it was too much for him, but perhaps too much for anyone. The, 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 it came to a head at the meeting of the first class counties at the Bob Willis Trophy final, um, when apparently reports vary from it being a bad meeting to a shambolic meeting. What they were trying to do was find some consensus about whether to play conferences or two divisions next summer, and they couldn't reach agreement. And I think one county chief told me that if he hadn't lost the counties going into the meeting, he certainly had by the end of it. I, in my article, I, I, um, I, I've examined where the blame lies, where the lines of demarcation run between the responsibilities of a chairman and the responsibilities of a chief executive. And I speculate that what more was the fall guy. Um, Tom Harrison, I'm sure will have some views on that. But, um, you know, what more has gone, Harrison bats on. But, but the issues remain. Yeah, why did Tom Harrison not take any responsibility for that? And why does he not justify himself why does he not make himself accountable to the media i think that I, he had been seen in public in the last 12 months as often as the Loch Ness monster it's very odd that the chair would take responsibility for a decision like that you i mean what did the executive do they're terrifically well paid well no well the chairman is there to coax and advise and this is all in my tim lamb piece tim lamb says what a chairman is meant to do and what a chief executive is meant to do and the chairman is there to sort of advise and train the chief exec and sort of prime him but the, it's the chief exec carrying out the actual actions the functions yeah the yeah. chair is there to actually sack the chief exec when necessary i mean tom harrison don't i mean he did face up to the public about the 
cancellation of the Old Trafford test and his reasons for why it was cancelled didn't really wash with the public, did they? No, but of course it wasn't really his decision. I mean, it was India's decision. I mean, he was in a, a, a you know, it, 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 I don't know, he wasn't going to get the same sort of criticism for that, but they haven't taken any responsibility, really. The executive haven't taken any responsibility for the Pakistan decision. They haven't taken any responsibility for the fact that they failed to get a grip on the race crisis, which seems to be besetting the sport. I mean, you know, lots of... I don't think it's betraying any uh, confidences here. The day, the first day of that first piece, Tom Harrison asked for Azim's number and phoned him, and he and he said, "This is on me, Azim. I will sort this out. This is my responsibility." Well, what's happened? Eighteen months ago, almost 15, 16 months ago, and 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 so many cricketers have told me they've had that conversation. You know, with Tom personally, but he's promised. He's looked them in the eye, and he's very convincing. I'll sort this out. I'll get this done. What happened? Nothing. Well, that's interesting. Um, thanks for the uh, the insight there from both of you. Um, ju- just one final thing before we get on to sort of more positive uh, stories um, is the the thing that Malcolm Conn, the now chief correspondent of the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, very kind of trenchant cricket writer who has also worked in administration, uh, working for the board and so on in Australia. And he's come out and said in our feature in The Cricketer that Joe Root had to be persuaded by a Queensland minister to come to Australia for the Ashes. Give us a bit of um, detail on that, Turbs. Yeah, so according to Malcolm, who was the press officer of Australia and is now a sort of very bullish newspaper man, isn't he? Um, Root wasn't persuaded fully to come by cricket administrators, the Australian Cricket Australia, and it needed the intervention of a Queensland government bureaucrat to give him the assurances that he needed. Uh, and, and Malcolm says this is a sort of an indication again of the crisis in confidence besetting cricket administration. So it was an interesting angle. And um, we spoke to Joe Root at a press conference this week and he seems sufficiently happy now that uh, families are going out there. Some families going out now. Some families going out at Christmas. Uh, and he seems happy now. But uh, yeah, apparently it was a, a bureaucrat stepping in. Sir Humphrey Appleby stepped in. <laughs> well, it's a good little uh, good little story. And um, Malcolm Conn certainly puts a perspective on the Australian cricket board as well, Cricket Australia, that they're beset with as many problems as the England cricket board. So it uh, it certainly is a mugs game being a cricket administrator, I'd say. And uh, we're lucky that we're journalists and we haven't got as much responsibility as them in a way. Uh, though, of course, I mean, we can have our own impact. And I hope that uh, as a result of, George, your particular, your, uh, particular activities on this uh, Azim Rafiq case, that we get a satisfactory conclusion and some action is taken. I got Tim Tim Lamb told me a great quote from John Major though. Um, apparently, John Major said to him, "I don't envy you, Tim. It seems there are more politics in cricket than there are in politics." <laughs> it was a great line that, um, which is very prominent in the current issue of the magazine. The Cricketer magazine can be subscribed to by going to thecricketer.com/slash/subscribe, and all these stories and more can be read in there. So subscribe immediately. So that puts the administration of 
domestic cricket into some kind of context. Um, obviously a tricky job. In a way, an even trickier job is running the international game. Uh, the International Cricket Council, of course, have that responsibility. And uh, I was suggesting actually recently in an earlier magazine that there was a conflict going on between the International Cricket Council who are trying to, to run the international game and lots of uh, domestic leagues and franchise owners who are trying to get more and more uh, domestic T20 leagues going and more and more uh, teams involved in those. And so you can see a, a conflict sort of happening there as the calendar gets more and more congested. But, you know, re refreshingly, the newly appointed chairman of the ICC is Greg Barclay, a New Zealander, and he seems to have a much more positive outlook on the future of international cricket and the way that franchises and uh, T20 leagues can work together with the international game. I interviewed him on Zoom uh, a week or so ago, and the interview is, is in the Cricketer magazine. And I thought I'd just play a little bit of his interview actually talking about the, the future of the, the way that T20 and the international game can integrate and being positive about that and also uh, looking at the the prospects for cricket being an Olympic sport and very much using T20 to expand the game. In my personal view and I, I think it's probably a generally um, accepted view is that domestic leagues are here to stay and I, I, given that they are the domestic leagues of, of individual countries, you know, those are their internal domestic competitions. I, I think we've just got to live with it. I, personally, I think that it's a great opportunity for players to, to be able to earn a bit of money outside of their, um, their own home uh, boards and arrangements to get those experiences playing in places like the Windies and, and India and um, whatever. I, you know, I think it's a a huge opportunity both financially and from a playing point of view and it's it's great for the fans quite clearly as well so genuine and, and anything that gets people involved in cricket and watching cricket following cricket is has got to be a good thing so i i don't feel that it's pushed us into a corner or it's something that we've got to push back again uh, against it the, the challenge with it is just the calendar it's um it's how everything fits in, into that calendar um how we can fit it without compromising um, international cricket, um, the advent and growth of the women's game, um, as I say, the, the domestic competitions themselves, and, and taking into account player welfare and, and, and just player well-being. I mean, there's, there's only so much that a professional athlete can actually do. So if we're not careful, something's going to break um, somewhere. So that's, I think, for all of us as administrators and, and as player Managers, that's that's probably the, the 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 massive challenge that we have moving forward, and there is it's it's probably exacerbated by the fact that there's a clamour, obviously from both boards and the player associations to to generate more money out of the game, which means that we're just trying to wedge more and more stuff into an already congested calendar. Um. Um, and so, you know, this is the sort of million dollar question, isn't it? What What is the solution? Is it is it windows for test cricket and windows for bilateral ODI cricket? I mean, is that something on the table to try and really establish clear windows of opportunity for both international cricket and domestic cricket? Yeah, I, I think that... Um... If the question is, does the ICC um, have a solution? No, I don't think so. I think that the ICC has a has a role to try to facilitate outcomes. But 
I mean, I'm on record as having said it. I'm, I'm using my New Zealand experience here with it, without a doubt and unabashedly so. I, I think that we've got to be really careful that we don't um, in any way undermine the importance of bilateral cricket. Um, it, it, you know, if you're New Zealand or, or Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, the Windies, countries that sit in behind you know, what they call the big three, not that I, I mean, I hate that term, but... Um, you know, that those countries need to have an opportunity to play um, a, a regular amount of, of international cricket and, and against meaningful opponents. There's no point in Zimbabwe playing Ireland um, for most of their um, most of their calendar. It, it, they've got to have the opportunity to play mm. against better teams. It's the only way they'll improve. And again, it's the only way that their commercial partners and more so their fans are, are going to continue to, to follow the game. And, and likewise, to develop um, pathways for um, players coming through. You know, they've, they've got to be able to see this cricket. Um, again, they're just not going to take take the game up or participate in the game if, if they don't get those um, aspirational opportunities. So I, I, I think that the solution, whatever it might be, lies with um, the member countries themselves have got to sit down collectively and the ICC absolutely has a role to play in this to facilitate outcomes which is not going to in any way suppress or, or um, lessen the importance of the domestic arrangements. It, it certainly gives them um, pathways through AE programs and age group um, arrangements right through to, as I say, at, at, at international level for men and women to, to play um, a good standard of regular international cricket. And uh, you know, as much as Australia, England and India are castigated around some of this, you know, it's difficult for them too because they play more cricket than maybe not Australia. Um, they could perhaps do a little bit better. But you know, India, India play more cricket than anyone else. And of course, everyone wants to play India because it's worth so much money. So you know, even that is going to take some untangling. And, um, and then, as you correctly say, you start to add in the burgeoning um, number of leagues, and some of those leagues are like the IPL that are starting to take even more um, room out of the calendar. Yeah. It gets really problematic. So maybe, you know, amongst other solutions, we've, we've got to look at, at you know, maybe, um, it, as I say, more sort of A-level cricket. So, so purely as an example, maybe some of those countries with greater playing depth will, will release their um, A-teams to, to play against the likes of, say, Zimbabwe and Ireland or whatever. So, you know, I, I, I still think it would be very, very good for the cricket if um, England A were perhaps playing um, against some of the, the lesser-ranked uh, four-member countries. And, and certainly, um, you know, I think that we've got to look at what's available for maybe the next eight or ten countries and behind those four members because... I'm doing a lot of rambling here, but you know, I think that if the game is truly going to grow globally, then we've we've got to have 15 to 20 teams that are competitive at um, at um, world level. Um, you know, turning up knowing that basically four teams are going to compete in the semi-finals and finals of a of a men's world event is, uh, you know, it's it's just not going to spread that um, that level of support and following for the game. So. The likes of Canada and Nepal and Papua New Guinea and Oman and countries like that really need to be given the opportunity to get themselves up to the next level. So they are being truly competitive. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. And, and in fact, you've done a, a great job already, uh, sort of anointing. I think it's 86 countries now have a T20 international label, having played 
T20 internationals, which is an amazing number, actually. Uh, and and is, that, is that sort of one of the approaches to try and get more and more countries playing T20, which at least is sustainable in, in lesser-known yeah. cricketing nations? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, t- the T20, I, I know that it's got its detractors, particularly amongst the purists, and, and I absolutely get that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's again, in these days, what players and fans want, isn't it? And it's a, it, it's an easy vehicle to get the game um, spread much wider and to, and to give it um, a, more a, more opportunity to, to continue to grow. So, um, I, yeah, absolutely, I think that it is. And you just look at this World Cup that's um, unfolding at the moment, and that's 16 teams that, that will move into that event. As we move forward, we'll build that up to 20 teams. And, you know, again, I know it takes more days out of the out of the calendar, but I, I, I think it's good for the for those countries to have that opportunity to enter those events. And um, you know, I, I know that we make a lot more money out of, say, a particularly a, a um, a 50 over event when you've only got um, the 8 or 10 teams but that's the short sighted that's not strategically going to work for the game we've, we've got to open that opportunity up and if we give it a little bit away financially um, I'm sure that we'll pick it up down the, down the line we've got a lot a, a lot more growth in the, in the global game and, and the following of the game and just to link to that, I suppose uh, on the the table, uh, you know, in the sort of medium term, is the potential for cricket at the Olympics. Is that a, or could that be a game changer for the game? I mean, obviously, the game is already uh, popular in the world and, you know, two billion people follow it or something. But could that be something that opens it up even more? And, and what's the sort of ICC's latest angle on that? Getting to to LA, if, if if in fact we can, I think would be would be great for the game because it's just taking the sport to an audience that's way beyond what we're what we're able to achieve at the moment. It it has the other advantages of being able to um, give opportunity to to countries outside of those you know traditional handful that are that are strong in the game. Um, you know, you look at countries like. Indonesia or, or China or um, you know, places like that, if you turn it into an Olympic sport, um, you might really start to see some some growth. But uh, I, I think we're, that really um, gives us an opportunity around the women's game. I, I think that if we could you know, look at our, our female sort of strategy around um, females' participation in cricket combined with you know, com games, um, Asian games and, and Olympic games, that is a really, really... Um, Great vehicle to fast track the, the growth of the game, and finally, I, what what it also does because it's a perennial problem in all sports. Obviously, the lesser countries are really struggling for uh, financial resource, and if if those countries that get not much money from the ICC and struggle to generate much at home, if they could suddenly tap into government funding and IOC funding, they they could possibly be quite game changer for a number of them that are, that are sitting sort of at a fledgling level just to push them you know up into the into the next um, phase so I think it's a it's a massive opportunity for a whole lot of reasons and the other thing that so that's one probably strategic um, approach or answer uh, but the other thing is that you know we've again rightly or wrongly made one of our other strategic or another strategic imperative is to try to grow the game out of the US, you know, the world's biggest sports market with a massive um, diaspora of, um, of Asian yeah. um, followers yeah. in, in the country. Mm. And pushing it in, into the Olympics in LA, I think, is a, is a way to really um, give that some momentum. 
which is why hopefully um, we'll be able to get a world event um, into into the US, which is probably a T20 World Cup co-hosted with the Windies. Um, and I, I think that to give the game that sort of profile and, and with a push on to the Olympics could be massive for um, for the game out of the US. So yeah, I, the Olympics is um, you know, very much a, a centerpiece of our, of our thinking. So, um, I, I mean, Greg Barkley talks, you know, very positively about the, the future of the game. He's, he seems encouraged by actually the, the spread of T20 and how it's really encouraged other nations to, to be involved in the international game. There are now 86 countries who are official T20 international nations. We've seen Scotland, Namibia, Oman uh, having a, a key role in the World T20 recently. And uh, his aim is to try and get more and more countries uh, competitive at World T20 level and then sort of leading on to the Olympics and spreading the game to places like the West Indies and, and the USA sharing a, a World T20 tournament. Of course, people will worry about the, the conflict with test cricket and whether that will be minimised. I think that perhaps less countries will ultimately play test cricket. It might get reduced from 12 to, say, 8 because sustaining test cricket in some countries is tough with the resources you need, the playing uh, resources and facilities and so on. But, um, I, I mean, how do you see, Q, how do you see the conflict between T20 and Test cricket playing out? Well, I mean, that's not a good thing, though, Simon, is it? The 12 goes down to eight. I mean, it's sad. I mean, who who, who would stop playing Test cricket? Sri Lanka and places like that? I mean, I, I love cricket, Test cricket there. I mean, I'm, I'm depressed by it, if I'm honest. And it, you tease me about this, but I mean... You know, it's like Japan. T20 is like Japanese knotweed, isn't it? It's just engulfing everything. Engulf my mate's house, and it's engulfing world cricket. I mean, I don't know. It's not a good thing that it's not a good thing that there's less Test cricket. It's not a good thing that we feel fewer countries. Oh, isn't there? Isn't there? Isn't there perhaps too much Test cricket now? Maybe. You know, it shouldn't it be special? Shouldn't it be special? I mean, we used to have five or six Tests. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, summer, seven. Seven is too too many in a test in an English test summer. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Um, five or six would be great, yeah. Um, and each one could be a, a major event. Well, I mean, I, I, you've been arguing that for, in the magazine for five six years, haven't you? You know, but you know the Ashes would be like a bit like the Ryder Cup. You know, sort of every every four years, sort of slightly truncated, maybe for a very special event. I, I, I enjoyed hearing your views and it very articulately expressed, but I mean, I, to me, it's something that I, I personally will, will try and fight, um, you know, but you can't, it's like King Canute and the Tide, isn't it? You can't <laughs> turn it back. It, it seems tricky, doesn't it? You can't, um, you, you, know, you can't stop these things, can you? I mean, the fact is that in some countries, India, Bangladesh, West Indies, whatever, the fans want to watch T20, don't they? So I, I guess it's a little bit like the cinema, isn't it? You know, sort of, we want everybody to go and watch some high culture thing, notes on a scandal or something, but actually people want to go and watch the latest Marvel. Um, I mean, I suppose I, the way I look at it is, the way I look at it is that, and, and this is something that Greg Barclay actually said as well. He said, my sport in New Zealand is rugby. And, uh, you know, everybody, every Kiwi grows up with rugby and rugby is a sport which is really only played by a small minority of countries, largely Commonwealth countries. And it's, it's, it's remained fairly restricted in, in those countries. Cricket, 
with its expansion through T20, now, as I say, has 86 countries playing T20 internationals and the potential for, for, for being an Olympic sport in 2028 in, in Los Angeles. So that's got to be exciting. And, you know, you, you can see that a country like Indonesia or Malta or uh, I don't know, um, Croatia will never be able to play test cricket because obviously they don't have the facilities, but they might be able to sustain T20, uh, a T20 competition. And there's been, you know, Gibraltar playing um, Spain and Portugal in a recent Tri-Nations T20 tournament. Surely that's good for the game, that it's spreading its tentacles far and wide. Yes, if, if you're just a, a cricket fan, then, then then yes, it is. Uh, I can I also can see it becoming like football, like European Championships, like the World Cup qualifiers. Yes, I and, and I can see the counties only playing T20. They they play a midweek game, game on a Wednesday night and a T20 game on a Saturday, like the football league. I I can see that happening, but I'm just saying I'm not I'm not happy about it. <laughs> Because I, I want Test cricket to endure because that's my favourite format. I think it's the best format. So I can easily envisage that happening. And if you're just saying you're a cricket fan, great. But, but I'm a Test, you know, I am a cricket fan, but I love Test cricket best. Well, I do too. By the way, mm. you know, I love Test cricket yeah, too. No, but no. I don't mind if if there are only eight countries playing it if they're all really serious and it's highly. Who are the eight? Who what you don't want them? is Ireland you know, playing England and it's a, it's a total mismatch. And I don't see a country like Ireland or Zimbabwe, uh, you know, even maybe Sri Lanka becoming or being able to sustain test cricket for, for very long. We're so very it's, it's, a, Lanka, it's a problem, yeah. isn't it? Um, but anyway, this is a very, very worrying what's happened in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Yeah. So th this is an issue which obviously the ICC are grappling with. They're meeting at the moment, in fact, in Dubai. What uh, Greg Barkley said amusingly was that he's been in the chairmanship of ICC for a year and uniquely has never actually been to a meeting because of New Zealand's, particularly New Zealand's strict COVID restrictions. So uh, now they are meeting in Dubai and they're, you know, sort of wrestling with all these issues. But the, the news is that they will try and maintain a very good spread of test cricket throughout the next cycle uh, and the World Test Championship, which obviously came to a kind of interesting conclusion in, in the summer with New Zealand winning it, uh, will continue. They're going to refine the point system a bit and the scheduling, but make it a, a, a very much a, a very important part of the international cricketing landscape. And so hopefully all the, the leading players and leading countries will aspire to, to win that. So th th that is a good thing. And I just am encouraged by generally uh, Greg Barclay's positivity about the future of the game and the potential for its growth around the world. All that is included, all these kind of stories are included in the current issue of the Cricketer magazine, which, as I say, is out this week. So hopefully you subscribe to it by going to thecricketer.com slash subscribe and we'd just like to wish of course England good luck in their final T20 match on Saturday against South Africa hopefully they can make it a, a clean sweep and get straight into the semi-finals and we'll do another podcast previewing the semi-finals early next week so Hugh and George thanks for your time and thanks for listening
Social Podcast Network.